Welcome to the IoT 613 podcast, discussing all aspects of the Internet of Things from Ottawa, Canada and beyond. My name is Robert Decker and I'm pleased to be your host for this podcast series. Today on the show we have Adam Freed, President of FactorSafe Solutions and Founder and CEO of IoT 613. We discuss a bit about Adam's background, his world travels, computer-human interaction, human factor engineering, and of course the upcoming IoT 613 conference being held in May of 2019. Feel free to engage with us on Twitter using the hashtag IoT613. Let's jump right in. Hey, Adam. Thanks for taking time to chat with me today. Very happy to meet with you today, Robert. Of course, we have lots to talk about from your work with Factor Safe Solutions and your more public role leading IoT613. So let's start a bit about your background. What did you study and how did you come to work in human factors engineering? Uh, well, a bit of a convoluted story, but basically I started out studying electronics uh, and electrical engineering at Concordia University in Montreal and uh, spent some time working in a number of industries, most notably telecommunications. Started getting uh, a little uh, a little bored with not interacting with people as much in terms of where the the equipment I designed was going. This was all network routers that would be stuck in a room somewhere. And uh, as I as my roles transitioned to more project management and business development and sales, uh, I got a, a real taste for working more with people and, and and seeing what would satisfy their requirements and their needs. And uh, I got exposed uh, a few years later to the field of human factors, and uh, it really appealed to me, and that sort of started my transition. It's pretty interesting, the, the concept of working with more people and now working in human factors, you're, you're really integrating technology and humans. I believe you worked at the infamous Nortel back in the day. I think everyone in Ottawa in the tech sector did. What kind of work were you doing there and what did you learn from this experience? Yeah, well, Nortel is uh, what brought me to uh, living in Ottawa, actually. I was I was in Montreal at the time and uh, I worked on what's called FPGA design, which is a programmable uh, microchip, basically. And uh, that was for handling different types of data in network routers. And, you know, I really learned. Uh, especially when I worked on designing test uh, test environments for other people's designs, how to get 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 an idea of, of what their requirements would be in terms of inputs and outputs, and and how to properly fit uh, a subsystem into a larger system, and and that kind of gave me this feel of, okay, it's it's not just what I design; it's what I'm putting in has to really fit with what works around it. And, and that started to getting me down that path of, of understanding requirements and, and designing to, to meet the needs of at least the greater system around what I was designing as opposed to maybe you know, the people working with it. But it was still almost like a fitting the, the, the user needs in, and, and it uh, started appealing to me more. Really interesting. Uh, you spent some time in Southeast Asia, specifically in Laos, I believe. What were you doing there in what does that experience mean to you? Oh man, that was that was a, a life changing experience for sure. Uh, after some time working in the tech field, uh, I met a, a fabulous uh, a woman, and she was really into traveling and cycling. And so we decided to go on a four month adventure, just the two of us, through Southeast Asia on our bikes. And uh, we spent a month in in Cambodia, a month in Vietnam, a month in Laos, and a, a month in Thailand where we actually ended up getting married. And uh, when we were in Laos, we spent a week volunteering at an organization called Digital Divide Data, or DDD for short. 
And they have this social enterprise model where they have paid contracts from Western companies to do data entry and digitization services. Um, And what what their model is, is to bring in disadvantaged and disabled youths of university and college age and provide them training and English language and computer skills and business skills and get them doing digitization uh, operations. And they would work for six days a week for six hours. And then the other part of the day, they'd be going to school, which was mostly funded through the social aspect of the company. Uh, And then after spending that week, uh, we eventually came back home and and the CEO of the company who uh, lives in uh, New York, where they have their small head office, asked us, um, uh, my wife and I, to uh, think about spending a year there to help uh, boost some of the capacity on their larger, more complex projects, where they they were really struggling to to find workflows that suited them. There's a huge cultural and language divide. Uh, clearly, the language is, is an issue. Uh, and as opposed to, say, India, where there's a lot of uh, digitization work going on as well, they don't have the same background uh, in terms of exposure to, to English language and education in English language. It's, it's very different in Laos. We were even in, we were in Vientiane, which is the, com- the, the capital. But even there, a uh, very low level of, of, of English uh, is spoken in general. Uh, comprehension is also not great. Uh, in particular, uh, a lot of the operators were coming from the countryside. They weren't just born and raised in the cities. Uh, and that really, in working with people who I couldn't verbally communicate with, it really gave me a sense of, wow, users of systems have all sorts of, of different needs and, and limitations in, in one way or another. And in trying to design these workflows, I had to design them uh, using very visual type of instructions. And a lot of any, anything I had to say, I'd be going, go through a translator. Um, and all the observations were, were very, uh, um, I'd say, silent because I couldn't ask direct questions. Uh, and it really, uh, it really helped improve my my skills in contextual observation, uh, in in creating processes and workflows that fit what the the operators can do, and and to provide instructions that are are very simple to follow, and again, very visual with with limited uh, wording. And and I've taken that experience into every other project I've done since. That's really interesting, Adam. I've, I've known you for a couple of years now, and I didn't know the sort of impact that mm-hmm. uh, that project had on you. I think it's really interesting from the design perspective of, you know, really looking at the human interacting with computers or systems, that absence of language is is a lot of people can't relate to that. Uh, there's another project you you have associated with Laos. It's called Pet Awareness. What is what is that project? Well, Pet Awareness in Laos was uh, something that, that came out of a, another passion of ours. Uh, speaking of myself and my wife, we're, we're both animal lovers. And uh, when we were there, uh, we saw a, a real lack of, uh, of, of pet health services. And in a country like that, uh, a lot of people on the outside see this as, well, how, how necessary is it? You know, there's people starving and, uh, and they have very little infrastructure and, and, and lack of, you know, lots of indoor plumbing and, and whatnot. And, and all, all true. And, and the, the people need, need a lot of help. But animal health 
it's particularly in, in a city like Vientiane, which is growing more dense, animal health does uh, have an effect on human health. There are transferable issues and there's cleanliness issues and, and just trying to control populations. Um, and so our, our goal with that was to uh, try to share knowledge uh, with a veterinarian from, from our area uh, the vet we were seeing at the time had done a, a project in South America where he had gone and had run a spay neuter clinic there and, and worked with local local vets to, to help impart knowledge. And uh, so we we managed to set up a similar thing with him and one of his vet techs. We did, uh, oh, it was months of fundraising to, uh, to send the two of them over there. And they spent uh, almost about two weeks. Um, they worked with one or two of the more, uh, notable local vets in, in, in Vientiane and Laos. And, um, they did a, a couple of spay neuter clinics. They did, it was a lot of knowledge sharing it actually, uh, our vet from, from this area, he ended up learning uh, a fair bit about why they use certain techniques there. They, they have to work within limitations and, uh, they don't all have all the best medicines and all the best tools that that the vets here have. So, so you know, I, I know that he took something away from from that experience as well. Um, we feel that we were we were successful and we helped uh, at least a bit to to share knowledge and and to also educate people, uh, pet owners, because people there do love their pets. It's becoming uh, well, this is you know almost ten years ago, but it's becoming and, and was becoming more uh, on vogue there to have pets as as companions. Um, and so we feel that we help to impart some knowledge on on proper pet care techniques and importance of vaccinations and and uh, spay and neuter. I would imagine there's a lot of public outreach and awareness needed. Is there must be a lot of strays in uh, in Southeast Asia? Yeah, there's a lot of strays, uh, particularly with cats in 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 Vientiane and Laos. Uh, cats aren't generally as as well loved uh, and well regarded as dogs there. Uh, so you see fewer there. There certainly are, uh, you know, much more so say in a in a very large city like Bangkok in Thailand, where we spent uh, a few weeks here and there, and lots of strays there. There's some great organizations. Um, in in uh, Thailand, in particular, uh, one called the uh, Soy Dog, that uh, that we've supported in the past. They're they're a great organization that's done a lot of rescue and and adoption. Very cool, commendable work. Uh, another topic you've been teaching at uh, Carleton University and Algonquin College for a number of years now. What specifically are you instructing and? In- what do you like most about this type of role in your life? Yeah, well, I started uh, my teaching gig uh, at Algonquin College. Uh, there I was instructing mostly in electrical engineering technology. That was going way back to my to my origins um, as, a, as an electrical and electronics engineer. So I had to stretch my memory uh, a fair bit there and, and, and research some of my first and second year engineering courses again to remember uh, some of those more more basic uh, uh, elements, uh, stuff I hadn't worked in in a long time. And from there, I ended up transitioning over uh, after a few years of teaching there to Carleton, where I got to teach uh, a course that uh, had been around for a, a while, uh, originally in psychology called um, Aspects of Product Design Methodology. 
it uh, it was shared at that uh, at that point when I started with the uh, school of uh, uh, interactive multimedia design, and uh, so this really spoke to my current passion. So I was was very happy to make that transition, and so that course is all about teaching uh, how to design and test with with usability in mind, uh, and really the understanding of uh, how to you know, create a a system product with the end user in mind, but not just the end user, but the end user and how they're going to be using something and where they're going to be using something. And uh, it was uh, it was a great experience. Uh, I, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, and, and you know, the why the why I enjoy it is is just to be able to impart knowledge to to the, the the next generation of of designers and researchers and to provide them some of my uh, insight that I've gained over the years, you know, working in industry and working with government. Um, I always enjoyed bringing in industry speakers as well. Uh, I find that that, that that has a lot of benefit to, to students, not, not to always hear from the same voice, but also to know that, you know, there, there's a lot of different venues, little er- different areas they can go to as professionals once they're finished school. I can imagine that teaching is very rewarding. A lot of interesting projects is another one, and then we'll get more into uh, the, the current life of business. Uh, you've been involved with the Computer Human Interaction in the National Capital of Canada. Uh, acronym is CAPCHI, and I think I've always said that wrong for many years. But You got it right this time. Excellent. What is your mandate, and how do people get involved in that? All right, so... CAPCHI, as you mentioned, is is a uh, a local chapter of an international organization called ACM SIGCHI, which stands for uh, Advanced Computing Machinery Special Interest Group in Computer Human Interaction. Okay. Uh, ACM on its own has been around for decades. Uh, the, the the computer hum- human interaction part is. Uh, somewhat more recent, uh, maybe about uh, 25, 30 years old. And really the, the, the mandate of the local branch is to circulate and spread the uh, teachings and, and understandings and, and uh, industry examples of good practices in computer-human interaction. You know, we often will refer to it as, as user experience design, human factors is an aspect of that as well. So anything that involves people interacting with devices, tools, any, anything that, that doesn't even have to have a screen, but some sort of electronics, uh, computer, uh, uh, you know, some sort of computer uh, um, uh, microchips in it, something, something that has interaction. And uh, yeah, that's done through monthly, basically like monthly meetups, uh, a variety of types. Sometimes it's it's a panel discussion. Sometimes it's a single presenter. Sometimes it's a, a field trip to a cool simulation center. Um, it's it's a really uh, interesting organization. It's it's great opportunity for networking with people uh, in in that area in that field, and ex- getting exposed to different aspects of it. Someone who works, uh, say, in in game design, might not understand uh, how much uh, computer human interaction work goes into uh, a military system for example, or, or the challenges of designing for that military system. And, and so uh, we like to bring out pre- presenters, uh, again, of various backgrounds and in 
various fields. Um, I learned about that uh, a number of years ago. I got involved, a little more involved in 2009, and, and I, I, it was in uh, 2013 that I became chair of the organization of the local chapter. And I chaired that for, uh, for about five years. And, uh, it's, it was, it was a great time, but it was time to, to move on and let others take over. And, uh, you know, I was very proud of, of what we did, uh, with the, uh, the volunteer group when, when I was there. That's very cool. Yeah. I've been following along with that for a number of years. Um, your, your, your business that you're working on is factor safe solutions and you provide human factor services in uh, safety critical industries. Can you explain a bit about factor safe solutions, what kind of work you're doing, perhaps what kind of organizations? Yeah, absolutely. So factor safe solutions, uh, as you mentioned, uh, we're a human factors consultancy and we focus in safety critical industries. And by safety critical, what we mean is uh, anywhere where anywhere that uh, an operator's tasks um, can have an impact on on human well-being, environmental well-being, uh, uh, equipment, uh, uh, large large uh, capital equipment well-being, and and so our main areas of focus are healthcare and transportation, and we also do work in in defense and as, as well in the in, in, excuse me in the energy sector. And so what we always uh, focus on is really understanding uh, what is the current state of the operators, uh, what the tools are using, the environments they're working in. Um, any new projects tend to be about uh, new technology integration. And so we have to un- have an understanding of what is their current state, uh, what sort of uh, hazards are in place in their in their current state of work and and how how are those translated in, into into some sort of risk level and so then what we try to do is see how this new technology new system that's being implemented is going to hopefully positively affect that by reducing a risk level or totally eliminating a hazard uh, as much as possible uh, and also uh, the idea is um, to not add new hazards, uh, and if there are new hazards, ensure that there are mitigations there so that the risk levels uh, are are as low, uh, uh, what we call a, a LARP, uh, to a level uh, as low as reasonably possible. So you can never totally eliminate a risk uh, once it's once it's there, but we can put in mitigations to make it a very low level risk. So we can we can try to make it such that the impact will be lessened by having. Uh, other safety measures, or uh, have work have the workflow such that 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 uh, in, that that hazard or that that uh, aspect isn't uh, encountered very frequently. And uh, with a lot of the new technologies coming out now, IoT technologies, automation technologies, uh, we really uh, have a, have a lot of call for okay companies who are not traditionally technology companies now really implementing high-end technologies into their workflows and so they're not accustomed to to, to dealing with this and, and so this is this is where we've really been focusing lately there's a lot we can unpack here so i mean in my uh, in my view i look at something like your work as you mentioned operators a lot so if we're talking healthcare, it could be nurses doctors administrative staff pretty much anyone that's using a computer or a machine or a station 
I, I can imagine that the implementation is really challenging. If you take a hospital, for example, and there's you know task A that someone's doing 20 times a day on repetition, how do you roll that out throughout a hospital? I mean, that's a whole other project, right? It's absolutely. So, I mean, what kind of what what is the sort of human factors approach to design? Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, the the environments we work in tend to be extremely complex. Uh, this isn't generally just someone sitting at a computer and, and using a data entry application that you know they want it to be simple and easy and, and that's important work too and that's that's still about efficiency and saving companies money uh, but like I said we're we're looking at safety so uh, we need to make sure as you mentioned when I say operators yes if it's healthcare we're talking about nurses uh, doctors um, could be administrative staff as well if they're using a similar systems when we're talking about transportation systems we're talking about pilots we're talking about maintenance workers it all depends on what the system is um, and so the approach that uh, we will usually take is a combination we we always have to do background research because one thing we're not usually uh, is a subject matter expert in whatever whatever domain we come into are we are subject matter experts in human factors but not necessarily in aviation or marine or or, or hospital work certainly a specialized type of hospital work we may have had exposure to certain things from other other projects but usually there's a nuance to every every different project so if i've done a rail project where i'm looking at uh application of a new system and then I asked to uh, to be uh, to do another rail project that is not really related. Well, I understand the the general workflows of conductors and engineers, but not necessarily as it as it uh, uh, as it uh, correlates to this other system. So it, we really have to do a good deal of background research. Uh, we do some some literature views. We like to see what what the state uh, of uh, industry standard is. Um, and then we'll do interviews to try to understand what are what are the operator, what are the user's pain points? Where are they really having trouble getting their tasks done in an efficient and effective manner? And, and what are the what are their current impediments to safety? And and then we we do what we can to also get in get on site and and observe and then ask questions after. Uh, we want to observe people in their daily routines. People don't always say what they actually do. They say what they think they do. And when they're actually working in their space, there's a lot of uh, 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 tasks that we do where they're, we're on autopilot. And we don't even always remember that some of these little things. Uh, in an environment, complex environment uh, like a, a hospital, or 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 in a, a local train locomotive cab, there's a lot of uh, noises. There's a lot of uh, warnings, and there's a lot of audio signals and, and visual signals that they the operators see so frequently that they don't even realize that they're pushing a button to acknowledge that, or or pushing a button to turn it off because it happens so much. There's no point in doing anything, and so these are the things that we have to catch by observing. And then from there, again, like I said, we, we try to uh, do uh, some sort of risk assessment to see, okay, where are the hazards and what are the risk levels? And then we want to see, okay, if, how is this new system, if we're going to implement it, is it going to be beneficial 
and and if there's new hazards, um, how do we make sure we implement new mitigations to to stop those? Uh, it's an iterative process, um, and we don't just go in once, say okay, here it is, done, go. Uh, we 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 prototype. And we go back to users and we see how it, it could work in a low fidelity prototype. And then we'll go to higher fidelity and we'll try to implement. Now, when you're getting into a complex environment like, like we have, it's hard to simulate these environments. So at, at a certain point, you really have to be able to put this into actual operations. And so usually a, a smaller pilot rollout, maybe in, if it's a hospital in one unit of the hospital, um, before it goes hospital wide, uh, you know, if you're talking about some sort of, uh, automated system to read medication barcodes, for example, uh, it's good to get that pilot done to really see, okay, what can we do to make sure we're, we're, we're covering all, all the, the recognized hazards now. It, it makes me think of a lot about hardware. So if we're talking about you know, an operator at a hospital or a train or any sort of industrial environment. Are your work, you're going in looking backwards at the research and auditing and looking at the current state of the industry and standards. There's a lot of thinking involved before you get to a prototyping stage. And so at a certain point, if you're not, you know, if Factor Safe Solutions is not a manufacturer of products, are you bringing in manufacturers or perhaps it's your clients existing suppliers and you're you're working with them to actually produce these you know machines so generally what happens uh, in in our workflows that we've done uh, our clients have either decided on what type of product they're going with or supplier they're going with to, to satisfy their solution or they've narrowed their choice down to a couple uh, ideally uh, in, in the ideal world and this doesn't generally happen is they call us before they go down any path because what will often happen is they'll make their decision and they'll lock themselves into a contract and whatnot with a supplier based on some very high level understanding of what they need uh, and based on oh this well this other companies other organizations other hospital uses this or their, or well, you know, we're, we're in, in, in Marine and this system is being used in aviation. It works for them. So it must be able to work for us. So let's use that system. Uh, ideally, we'd be able to come in and do this background assessment first to understand the pain points, the needs, and how those translate into not only usability requirements, but technical requirements. And that, that's where my background in engineering helps as well in my work. Um, not not to not to downplay anyone who, who's in human factors there's a lot of but people come to human factors from different backgrounds a lot of people come from psychology which uh which is uh, hugely important because you're talking about human behavior that's that's the main aspect of human factors is is human behavior i've learned a lot of that uh since since doing my uh bachelor's degree uh, i did a master's degree with a focus in human factors so uh, i've learned a lot on on the job as well and other trainings. Uh, but once, ideally, again, we'd be able to provide them with this list of requirements first, and then they'd be able to go and shop around and find a system that meets their requirements as best as possible. But that doesn't usually happen. Usually we're brought in to say, oh, we have this thing, and now it's not quite doing what we wanted it to do. Can you help us? 
And, and so, yeah, absolutely. We do what we can. Um, and we try to work with the vendor uh, to get them to customize the system as much as possible to, uh, to, to meet the, the requirements that, that we're identifying as we go along through this iterative process. Sometimes it's, it's more feasible than others for them. Uh, other times we have to face the fact that, okay, well, we can't do any modification to the system. So we have to design the workflows to account for these issues that we've recognized in the system. Uh, training, we have to make sure that, okay, we've recognized that there are certain limitations to this system uh, that don't map to to sort of the, the real world. Uh, that, might, that might be in terminology, that might be in, in visual, the icons that are used uh, that don't quite match with what this environment has. Um, maybe the, there's something that uh, looks like a, a box or a book where something where we feel it really should look like a check mark. Um, and so, you know, we can point to, to these aspects of a system uh, for the company or the organization to implement in their training. Focus on this because it's not intuitive. Users are going to need to know that this is this means that. Or again, workflows to try to uh, uh, have them avoid some of these usability uh, issues that could lead to, to, to safety incidents. Uh, you, you know, you talk about hardware versus software. We work in at the system level. And so when I say we work at the system level, yeah, it could be hardware. Usually hardware now means a software interface, mean, means a, a screen. There's usually some screen, uh, especially when we're talking about these, these more IoT-based systems where you have sensors in place feeding data uh, onto some sort of, of user screen, whether it's a mobile device, whether it's, it's a smart glasses or, or a smart watch or, or a full computer screen. Uh, so it's about, okay, well, how do we deliver the data to the users in a way that doesn't distract them? but provides them the key information at the right time and allows them to interact with that in as, as simple a way as possible. Uh, and and we, we, work with, we have to work with existing environments. Say um, we're working on implementing a new system, uh, say a new electronic healthcare uh, record system that includes barcode scanning on medication into a hospital. Well, it would be great if every patient room could have uh, a computer screen, and we could have all this infrastructure to make it simple for uh, the operators, the practitioners, be it the, the doctors or nurses, to be able to access that information anywhere at any time. You know, okay, well, we can have these these mobile devices. Maybe they want more information. We can't change the infrastructure of a hospital, so we have to work with what we have and try to create new workflows to accommodate for for those limitations. You know, I would I would pick up on something you talked about earlier about you know being brought in on a project after a company's already decided on the solution or they've already started you know the train's going down. It's funny because you know I work in marketing. It's very similar, right? The the product's already created, the brand's already created. Now help us sell it, type thing. Mm. Um, you know, we talk to a lot of UX people as part of IoT six one three, and it's very similar, right? The the interface has been built. Now we want some UX on top of that. Well, <laughs> ideally, as a consultant and a professional, you want to be engaged earlier. So I think it's it's an interesting point coming from what I see human factors as a very, very complex uh, system or uh, way of thinking beyond marketing, even user experience. Human factors is a whole other level as far as I'm concerned. 
let's let's jump into IoT six one three, right? We're on the IoT six one three podcast, and you are the uh, original founder, I would say, right? The CEO and uh, chief kingpin of yeah. IoT six one three, and we've been going on this for since two thousand fourteen, I believe. So tell us a bit about what is IoT six one three. And uh, let's start there. So what is IoT 613? It's a good question. Uh, it's something that, is, that has uh, metamorphosized a bit over the years. As you mentioned, we, we were born, uh, I'd say, in, in uh, I'd say it was early 2015. Uh, it was an idea to bring some funding to CAPCI, that organization that I was chairing. Uh, that's a not-for-profit, but uh, it needs an operating budget. And so every few years, uh, we do, or we have done in, in the past, a, uh, a paid event, be it a, a workshop from, from some high-end facilitator that people have to buy tickets for. Usually, it was, it was something a little more contained like that. But I, uh, I had a, a, an idea to do something a, a little bigger that would reach out to more of the community. And at that time, IoT was... Uh, it was still, I mean, it's still new to a lot of people now. Uh, even back then, a lot of people in industry uh, were still less familiar with the term. But we thought, hey, this let, let's let's bring some great speakers and and make this informative. And so we put together a day and a half with some with some uh, design development workshops in the first half day and and a full day of speakers. And uh, we kind of threw a bunch of stuff at the wall and and tried to see what would stick. And it went really well. We we're really excited about it. There's good energy, and we said, "All right, let's let's make this bigger and and see where it can go." And we had another event in 2016 where we we moved into Museum of Nature, big old castle, which was pretty cool. And uh, and then it was obvious that we needed to 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 pivot a bit on our model. And that's when uh, Walter Knittel and I got together and decided that uh, we're going to uh, incorporate. And so him and I founded the corporation of IoT 613 together. And that's allowed us to really look at how, how we can uh, use this uh, vehicle to bring not only our community together, of the IoT community in the, in the national capital region, but how can we show that this, this, is, uh, this is more about what Canada is doing uh, to the world? We wanted we wanted to show this that this is this organization is bringing people in from uh, from important parts uh, of of the IoT space and to uh, to make this uh, our, our main event the, the conference a, uh, a a real must attend uh, in the community we're we're now uh, fully funding and and basically we're. We're operating the the IoT meetup as well, so we have that more community outreach uh, event as well, and uh, you know we're we're looking at at adding new aspects uh, all the time. So really, IoT six one three is is about bringing people together, uh, uh, sharing and spreading information, giving people and companies, organizations a chance to connect. IoT is is a broad. Uh, it's a broad statement. It's a large uh, umbrella, and there are a lot of silos in there, and and you see a lot of events that are that are siloed, and they're great. There are great events on on artificial intelligence and machine learning and cybersecurity, and and these are very important. Uh, every industry, every segment needs their own events, but what's missing there is 
how these pieces, how these silos can work together to really create that end-to-end solution. And so, and that's and that's what we're we're doing is we're allowing people to to network to help build the end-to-end solutions. IoT six one three has grown a lot since two thousand fifteen, and I'm really proud to be involved uh, throughout my time with you guys. Um, where do you see it going in the next couple of years? One of the things we're, we're we want to work on is to take what we have now in terms of our exhibit space. So we have an exhibit space with about 20 booths in it, uh, mostly our our sponsors for, for the conference. And that is a very popular part of our, of our events. And what we want to do is we want to blow that up. We want to turn that into a real expo style event where people who, who you know, maybe can't spend or, or, or don't want to spend the whole day listening to expert speakers, they can come and spend hours in our exhibit space. And we want to have technical talks on, on substages in there. And, and we really want to make this uh, a hub of, of activity and having, having people uh, browsing around and, and interacting and, and, and meeting new, uh, new companies and, and potentially new suppliers and partners. And, you know, we want 50, 60, you know, 80, what, let, let's see where we can grow. And this is, is going to be a, uh, that's a goal of ours in in the in the near term. We want to turn that into into that big expo, and we want to highlight not just Ottawa. Again, this is about Canada. We want this to be Canada's IoT event, and to bring in people from everywhere, from everywhere in the world, all North America, Europe, uh, even you know as far as Asia, where where a lot of literally a lot of uh, high tech work goes on. We're working towards uh, May 2019. I believe it's the fifth IoT 613 conference. It will be at the Canadian Museum of History. What I really like about these conferences, like you're talking about exhibit space, um, speaker presentations, there's panel discussions, there's even workshops. You know, typically we'll have a, a technology workshop and then a business of IoT workshop. I think you've done a good job over the years to bring a lot of different rooms and things to do throughout a two or three day conference. What can we look forward to in 2019? Do we have themes uh, and, and speakers lined up already? Yeah, so uh, we're looking at a, at a few themes this year. We're not, we're not gonna go as, as uh, down the, the single verticals as we did last year. We wanna, we wanna generalize it a bit, but we're definitely gonna be having some, some very key themes. Uh, in particular, uh, cybersecurity is a huge deal with IoT. People have sensors and devices all over themselves and their homes and their businesses and their vehicles and the need for for uh, robust security within the IoT network is immense and it's never going to go away. And as, as anyone who works in the cybersecurity field will tell you that the hackers are almost always one step ahead, uh, you know, build that build that giant wall and they'll just build a bigger ladder. Uh, that that's that's a, a big part of what we're going to be presenting. We're also going to be uh, bringing in some people to, to talk about uh, IoT networks. So more about the technology side, uh, 5G, LoRaWAN, some of these important uh, communication uh, standards that, that allow the the high uh, volume of data at high speeds to be transferred around uh, the world. 
Uh, in addition, we're looking at a couple of uh, other verticals. Uh, in particular, uh, we're, we're hoping to bring in some, some quality speakers on precision agriculture. Uh, agriculture obviously is a, is, a, is a major part of all our lives. Everyone likes to eat. And uh, we want to investigate how IoT is changing the agriculture space. Um, what what new new means are are hopefully going to allow us to have greater food security, um, and and hopefully better diversity and understanding of supply chain. So that should be a pretty uh, pretty attractive um, uh, topic as well. Last year, for the first time, we did a social impacts of IoT discussion panel. It had we people have been asking us to do that for years. And it was immensely popular. Uh, we didn't schedule enough time for the panel or the questions. There were people lined up at the microphones to ask questions when we had to cut it off. Uh, we're going to bring something similar back this year. Uh, it may be a, a strictly a social impacts uh, panel. It may be something more akin to uh, state of IoT in Canada, which will have aspects of social uh, impact in it as well. Uh, but we're definitely bringing that back. And something else we want to bring back that we started in our last conference was the idea of this uh, 613 showcase. And although we want to be this national slash international level event, we, we don't want to forget our roots and we don't want to forget the local community. And so we'll provide uh, an opportunity for uh, startups and, uh, and academic researchers to uh, to present what they're doing in a series of uh, short lightning talks presentations, so we're 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 really uh, we've really got some so something for everyone. It's going to be a, a great program. And again, like you said, we've got workshops. We're planning another development workshop, uh, business oriented workshop, and uh, a surprise. We may have a, a third one. Uh, we're looking at uh, a really, really uh, cool interactive uh, UX or user experience workshop uh, focused on AI and machine learning. A lot going on for sure. Uh, how can, I mean, IoT 613 is, has traditionally volunteer run. You've since incorporated and, you know, working on the business model to make it self-sufficient. You know, obviously the, the point is to build the community in Ottawa, to showcase Ottawa, to involve you know, all of Canada to reach out to the world. So there's there's multi layers there. So as a conference, as an organization, you're constantly looking for speakers and sponsors and volunteers. I mean, how can people get involved with IoT six one three? Oh, absolutely! It's uh, it takes uh, it uh, it takes a, a village to raise a conference. <laughs> <laughs> if I can steal a, a, a phrase. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely go to our website. Uh, you can, we have a, we have a contact form through there. Uh, the best email address to, to make, to, to make contact with us is, is things at IOT 613. Uh, we do have a newsletter you can sign up to as well on the website and, uh, you can contact us through our, our various social media channels. Uh, we're, like you said, yeah, we're, we always need a diverse array of people. Uh, you know, you're doing great work for us yourself. What? with the podcasts and, and other sort of digital marketing aspects. And, and we have people doing all sorts of things behind the scenes. And um, the, the more expertise we have, the better. Uh, we need on-site volunteers during the conferences as well. 
So uh, yeah, if, if you're listening to this and, and you're, you're interested in contributing, then, uh, then please uh, look us up and, uh, and drop us a line. There's definitely lots of ways to get involved. Let's talk about IoT in general. I mean, since I've been involved with IoT 613, I've learned a lot. We've had a lot of amazing speakers from big global brands to local startups. What I find really interesting is the um, industrial and the commercial aspects of IoT. A lot of people that I talk to in my day-to-day life think about smartwatches, wearables, Google Assistant, all the consumer type things. And as you're talking about cybersecurity and precision agriculture, you know, it comes down to smart cities, smart buildings, airplanes. I mean, it, the list just goes on. It's touching every facet of our lives. I mean, what do you think is, you know, the next couple of years with IoT? What are the trends? I mean, just general thoughts about the near future. Yeah, it's it really is amazing. You know, like you said, it, it touches all aspects of our lives and, uh and we're, we're, we're trying to, to get that message out. Uh, what do I see? I mean, you know, clearly the world is moving towards uh, autonomous vehicles. Uh, that, that's going to be a, a huge change. Um, and it, it goes hand in hand with the concept of smart cities. We really need to have uh, changes in our infrastructure so that we can support these autonomous vehicle networks. Um, we are looking at uh, a generation coming up where it's it, there's a lot of questions on what on pri- on privacy. Uh, what information can we give, and what information should we give? Um, you know, can we really allow ourselves to be uh, driven around by autonomous vehicles, whether they're in the air or, or on the ground? Um, so there's going to be a lot of, of, uh, ethical and, and, uh, regulatory issues that have to come into play. It's another advantage of us uh, as an organization being in Ottawa. We have the direct, uh, contact with federal government, uh, all these regulators, and, and we get to bring them into the conversations somewhat easily. Um, that, that, that adds a lot because we can't just look at, what is the technology? We have to look at well, you know, how are how are our governments going to going to try their best to keep it safe for everyone? Uh, you know, can we just throw a bunch of people and drones and say fly around and 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 hope, hopefully the technology is good enough to to keep you alive? Absolutely not. So I I see government making a lot of changes to their approach and. You see it. You see it already. Uh, new innovation centers and a lot more outreach to, to industry. They really need to uh, stop playing catch up, and they need to to get on top of the uh, on top of the, the situation. Whether it's in transportation or healthcare or whatnot, they have to really get an understanding of what are the new technologies coming out. What impacts can they have on the the people and the environments around them? And how can we, we regulate these to ensure safe use? Um, uh, so I see that as a big change as well, is, is, is government, uh, government understanding and government involvement. Um, from there, I mean, look, the, the technology is, it's changing so rapidly. Uh, for me to say, I think in five years, you know, we're going to be in, in autonomous vehicles. Well, 
yeah, okay, maybe, but maybe the, the whole paradigm is going to be shifted and, and uh, you know, the, there's going to be hyperloops and blah, blah, blah. It's going to be so different. You know, you look at the smartphone and if you'd ask even the, the, the greatest industry mind five years before a smartphone was introduced, what they think is the future of, uh, of mobile phones, no one would have probably thought about that because it was so beyond anything we could envision. No, we never we didn't have anything to that at that level of being able to uh, have have a powerful computer in your hand that had direct contact to to the internet so that not all the processing power has to be on this small unit and that was always our limitation was well we're only we're limited by the size of the device because all the processing power had to be on the device well now we've got the cloud we've got ai uh, you know who, who knows uh a big worry is with all these new technologies is, is of course, the workforce. Um, what's going to happen? And we need that to change. We, we need some someone, some economists, uh, some, some people on some level to really gain an understanding of how the, the IoT age is going to affect a certain type of industrial worker. And in every industrial revolution we've had, this one, you know, we call this the fourth industrial revolution, every time there has been the elimination of various types of jobs. There's always some sort of process automation. There's always, whether it's, oh, all of a sudden now we're going to, to production lines, you know, Ford Motor Company and, and, and putting the cottage workers out of business. And people have to be able to adjust uh, and, and stay productive in society. We can't necessarily leave that up to them to figure out. People, you know, we don't want people to flounder. We want society to thrive. And so uh, whether it's through industry, whether it's through government, whether it's through, uh, again, some sort of economic research, people have to, so, somehow people have to get around to figuring out how we can retrain and what are those important places we can retrain people to, to help in in the new aspects of of where the society is going i'll bring it back to ottawa the iot community in ottawa as we're sort of uh, helping to build that or getting involved in what's naturally unfolding um i mean we talked about autonomous vehicles we talked about cybersecurity. we talked about government regulators uh, there's a lot of different industries in this city i mean what's your snapshot of what types of IOT is happening in Ottawa beyond, you know, there's almost everything happening. But I mean, Ottawa has an autonomous vehicle uh, working prototype on the road in Canada, and there's BlackBerry QNX is working on that and a bunch of other companies. Um, Cybersecurity is really big out in Canada as well. I mean, what other areas have a lot of workforce in them? Well, sort of stemming from that, that late 90s uh, telecom boom, we were known as a as a real hub for for these network communication companies, and and to a to a degree that hasn't changed. We still have a number of of large networking companies, uh, and, and they've shifted. You know, they 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 know that well. They can't just be be working on on telephone communication systems anymore. Uh, and so, companies like Nokia uh, are focusing on how do we provide the backbone. Uh, for sensor data communication, uh, in addition to internet communication through, you know, human-based internet communication, so we still Ottawa still has a has a, a good presence in in the networking area. 
you know, like you said, the yeah, autonomous vehicles uh, is is a is a big focus now for for Ottawa High Tech. Um, uh, we have uh, a center of excellence in in, in Canada, um, and Ottawa is a real entrepreneurial city. Uh, a lot, you know, I, I, I spoke about the, the tech boom in the late 90s that, that ended in the early 2000s with the, with the, 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 the um, telecom bubble bursting and then Nortel going out of business. What that did was a lot of innovators and a lot of engineers and designers came out of those, those large companies. And there weren't always landing places for them, They're, especially at that time, because um, a lot of the industry in Ottawa, that the tech industry in Ottawa was feeding into those larger companies. And so the ripple down, uh, the trickle down effect basically had a lot of those smaller companies go out as well because they, they lost their contracts. And, and so it made people think, what new things can we do? And that I believe, I feel that entrepreneurial spirit is really still here in Ottawa. And so you see a lot of startups and we have some, some really smart uh, and, and good incubator type of organizations. We talk about Invest Ottawa and uh, LSpark. Um, and, and what they're doing is they're, they're helping people uh, bring their, their visions to reality. And, and so, like you said, we have a little bit of everything here where it's a, it's a real sprinkling of, of the the whole ecosystem of IoT. You know, I was thinking about Nortel the other day and how that affects the local economy. And I, I was pondering if, if Nortel was still going today and thousands of employees were still there, you know, we would probably be farther behind as a, as a city with innovation and so on. Who knows? I was just pondering that, but it's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, it's it's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, you never know. You never know. Maybe maybe Nortel would have taken a a hard right and 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 really adapted and changed with the times. Uh, who knows? Uh, you know, there was a group in Nortel that was unfortunately one of the original ones cut when the when things started going back called Design Interpretive. And that was the home of a number of really, really good uh, UX and HCI, human computer interaction specialists who came out of schools like Carleton in this area uh, that had, at that time also had a great HCI program. They had uh, what they called the hot lab, the human oriented technology lab. And they were doing things that were so advanced in terms of uh, interaction with with telephone devices and screen based interactions that at that time hadn't hadn't been seen hadn't been done. Our telephones were a block with a dial or a block with buttons, and that was it. And then they were given the opportunity to almost you know sort of do this blue sky type of development work or design work, I should say. Uh, and prototypes and bringing out these new paradigms of, of what a what a screen on a telephone can can bring to society. Um, and, and like I said, that was one of the first parts of the organization to be cut. And I know uh, a number of those people and they've gone off to to other organizations and brought their learnings to there and, and allowed those to really uh, build. So who knows if that group wasn't wasn't cut and 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 other groups weren't cut, you know, maybe. Maybe Nortel would still be thriving, and and uh, you know wouldn't be the butt of so many so many jokes. <laughs> it's a very common word, this Nortel thing in in Ottawa. I meet a lot of people that are coming out of there. 
you know, honestly, it's a it's a real big pleasure to 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 chat with you a little bit more in depth about your background, the type of work you're doing. As much as we've been building IoT six one three for a number of years, we're so focused on that that we don't really get a chance to kind of look backwards and 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 do a three sixty view. Do you have any sort of closing remarks? I mean, you want to talk a little bit more about IoT six one three or your human factor engineering work? Well, uh, you know, I just I'll say that. To conclude, you know, we live in exciting times. the The rate of change is is immense. Uh, we have to be careful that we're going down the right paths in terms of uh, safety uh, and and certain ethical implications of what we're doing with technology. Um, you know, organizations like uh, like Factor Safe Solutions. Uh, are are striving to ensure that 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 new technology uh, implementations are are done in in a responsible way, um, and uh, and and again, you know, the, the sky's the limit. Uh, come to our events and and see what's happening. Awesome, yeah. May two thousand nineteen, IoT six one three, and uh, we'll look forward to that. And we'll probably be releasing lots more information in the near future. And hope you have a great holiday season. We'll chat soon, Adam. You too. Thanks a lot for your time, Robert. It was fun. Awesome. Cheers.